The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In parts one and two of this episode, we began to take time out to debunk and correct an internet article entitled, Why Jesus Wouldn't Cut It as a Pastor in Today's Evangelical Megachurches. We discussed this title as a classic example of faulty logic and an incorrect worldview. We also began to debunk and dismiss the various logical fallacies in the article itself. In order to understand this episode and the context of the remaining portions of this podcast and its episodes, it will be necessary, if you have not already, to listen to and be familiar with the preceding episodes and their context in order to move forward with contextual discernment. In parts 1 and 2 of this episode, we were engaged in debunking the first five sentences of this author's article. Given the level of profound errors which have been incorporated, it has been no small task. However, if 
per chance by doing so it helps to bring one lost misguided or misinformed soul to the realization of who jesus really is and their need for salvation it will be well worth the effort that being said let us take up where we left off in part two here again are the first five sentences from the author quote Jesus never could have been the pastor of a contemporary evangelical church nor a conservative Roman Catholic bishop. Evangelicals and conservative Roman Catholics thrive on drawing distinctions between their, quote, truth, unquote, and other people's failings. Jesus, by contrast, set off in an empathy time bomb that obliterates difference. Jesus' empathy bomb explodes every time a former evangelical puts love ahead of what the Bible says. It goes off every time Pope Francis puts inclusion ahead of dogma. It goes off every time a gay couple are welcomed into a church. Jesus' time bomb explodes whenever atheists follow Jesus better than most Christians." So as we continue, the next thorny statement and question to discuss is, quote, it, i.e. Jesus' empathy time bomb, goes off every time a gay couple are welcomed into a church, unquote. Now, the first term which needs to be defined is the word, quote, church, unquote. Here again, in essence, we are right back to our three definitions of truth. If there is no truth in existence, period, then there is no basis for anyone to be able to define anything, much less a church. If truth is only relative and subjective, then a church can be anything and everything. It would not matter who, what, where, when, or why I or anyone else decides to welcome or exclude anyone because we are all equally right. If there is no ultimate absolute standard of truth by which anyone can say that something is right or wrong, then everything is subjective relative opinion. Thus, we would have to recognize an ultimate source of authority by which we would then be in a position to know what is or what is not a church. So, the issue is, what does God and his word define as being his church? For those interested in a more comprehensive and specific discussion of this issue, I would direct the listener to the two-part episode entitled, Questions About the Church. However, in summary, the church is what God refers to in the original Greek word as ekklesia, or the outcalled ones. This begs the question, outcalled from what? Well, according to God's full revelation in context, those whom God calls are called out from sin, separation, rebellion, and the world. The next question is, sinning against whom? Separation from what? Rebellion against whom? And the world in what context? Again, searching God's word in the totality of correct contextual exegesis, we are told that we are separated from God by our own nature, which is corrupted by sin. 
Sin is defined as falling short, an inability on our part to measure up to God's standard based upon our own merits. We start out and remain in rebellion to God due to our nature. The world is both man and creation apart from and without the new birth brought about exclusively by God's special act of redemptive grace by which he ultimately draws and chooses those whom he wills by his grace to repent and receive his gift by faith through Jesus to be reconciled as sons and daughters to himself. Now, for those truly and sincerely who have received God's gift of justification and reconciliation, God's word, the ultimate source of authority, tells us that God implants his Holy Spirit by which he empowers us to be a new creation. Our old nature is dead and buried with Christ. Our new nature is given life through Christ's resurrection and intercession on our part. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we are, quote, a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, unquote. Thus, as a practical matter, if in fact we have God's indwelling, empowering Holy Spirit abiding in us, we would expect to see the fruits of transformational change from those things, whatever they are, that are displeasing to God, and we should see increasing confirmation of our hearts, minds, and spirits into the likeness, measure, and stature to the image-bearing qualities of God as revealed in His Word. Conversely, to the degree that we examine uh, our lives and compare them to the universal authority of God's Word and see areas where we are unwilling to let go of issues, habits, thinking, or behaviors which are against God's revelation, we are in and have rebellion. The $25,000 question is, how do we know what is or what is not sin or is displeasing to God? Well, if we're going to avoid the vacuous void of secular humanistic relativist opinion, then as with everything else, we know to seek the universal authority of God's word to determine the truth. Remember, it is not a question of feelings, emotion, opinion, consensus, percentage, polling, no matter how great. It is a question of what does God's word say in context. So, as a hypothetical, let's assume that we want to know whether or not A is something which is a sin. Rather than debate the issue from a finite, flawed human opinion, we should alternatively research and study God's word in context to determine what, if anything, God proclaims. There are ultimately only three options available as a potential outcome. One, God's word is silent about A. Two, 
God's word is neutral about A. And three, God's word is clear about A. Now, if God's word is specifically silent or neutral about A, then first and foremost we should look more broadly in God's word to general principles and doctrine which potentially affect A. Absent this, we are guided by prayer, discernment, the Holy Spirit, and our conscience. Finally, after all else is exhausted, we can expand our considerations to include secular and cultural considerations. If, on the other hand, God's word is clear regarding A, then given that God's word is the ultimate authority for truth, meaning, morals, beauty, significance, and reality, we only have two choices. One, repent, agree, submit, obey, and follow. Or, two, rebel, disagree, argue, and disobey. Additionally, God's word reveals that we are all born with sin and separation, which includes rebellion, disagreement, arguing, and disobedience against God. However, if so be that God has been pleased to call and draw us to himself by his grace, then it is also clear that the power which raised Jesus Christ from death to life will likewise raise our hearts, minds, and spirits from the deadness of sin to the newness of life eternal. We will be given a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit which has changed. Our new nature implanted will desire the things of God, i.e. repentance, agreement, submission, obedience, and following Simultaneously, this same new nature will share the same disdain and abhorrence for those things which displease God or which serve to hold us back from being fully conformed into the fullness and likeness of his image. Best of all, we don't simply have ideals by themselves. We have actual transformational power and the promise of victory by faith in the same victory which Jesus had over death to life. With this in mind, the simplest, most straightforward line definition of a church, i.e. the out-called ones, are those who cumulatively are likewise called out from the old nature of serving the motions of sin and separation to cumulatively living in the newness of life eternal according to the riches, mercy, love, and righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Hence, the true church of Jesus Christ will teach, preach, admonish, encourage, rebuke, be patient, be sensitive, discipline, love, and hate those things which God in his word reveals according to his nature implanted and growing in Christ within us individually and corporately as his body. Having set the framework and foundation according to the ultimate source of authority, we can now proceed to examine what any individual or a church who is genuinely found to be in Christ is going to do 
or not do regarding A. As an individual, if so be that we have been changed by God, God will reveal our condition, including at some point A, if God's word is clear about A. We will be convicted, repent, seek forgiveness, be justified, be transformed, and will find sudden or gradual victory over A. A will be anathema to us because A is anathema to God. If A is anathema to God and God's Spirit truly indwells in us, then God's Spirit and power will do warfare against our old nature, which enslaves us to A. To the extent that we remain steadfast in prayer, faith, and reliance on Christ's finished work, we will be delivered by God's grace from A. On the other hand, whenever we find ourselves refusing to acknowledge, repent, confess, and seek God's deliverance from A, no matter what A is, we demonstrate that we have never truly met Christ, repented, and been converted, established a relationship, and thus we remain in rebellion, sin, and separation. As far as a church is concerned, a true church, the outcalled ones, as stated, is nothing more than two or more individual believers matching the above criteria who gather together to fellowship, pray, worship, learn, grow, encourage one another, hold each other accountable, admonish and teach according to God's word what the ultimate authority declares in context according to spirit-filled, correct hermeneutical principles of exegesis. So, at all levels, from the top down, from the bishop, the pastor, to the elders, deacons, and to every member of the church, the goal is to be conformed by his grace through faith to the image and nature of Jesus Christ in every area of their lives, including A. Thus, if we look at the propositional historical revelation of God's ultimate authority, we see the following regarding the church's attitude towards those in sin. First and foremost, the true church must remain constantly vigilant to serving, loving, and following its true love, Jesus Christ, and to reading, studying, understanding, and obeying God's word in correct context. Second, in doing so, the church and its members individually and corporately obey the Great Commission to go out to all the world and preach and teach the entire word of God and to be salt and light to the world. As a practical biblical matter, what this means is that we have humans who were once separated from God by sin who are now justified by Jesus' finished work, who are being used of God as humble vessels to communicate and witness to fellow human beings who are in the same condition as we once were and continue to be to some degree. 
Thus, even in the Gospels, we see imperfect disciples of Jesus going to sinners and exhorting them by word and by deed. The hope and the goal is that God will use us or will himself unilaterally work in other people's lives as he did and continues to do in ours. The end result is that people who are separated from God by sin and rebellion will be drawn and will be called out to repentance from sin, rebellion, and dead works to serve God. But make no mistake, being called out from sin, rebellion, and dead works is the definition of the true church. If you are not called out from sin and rebellion, then you are not the church. This is the problem we face. Today, the secular world has so muddied the waters that, by and large, we no longer know what God's definition of a church is. Instead, we have any number of definitions given generally by the world according to relative truth. Today, a church can be anything and everything and still be called a church simply because it chooses to do so. Because we have already swept what God, i.e. what the Bible says, into the trash can, we can adopt whatever rules or none at all as being what man's church will be. Consequently, instead of the goal being for God to call and transform sinful people into the image and nature of his son Jesus, we have a new goal which is for man to use whatever techniques, marketing philosophies, and attitudes necessary to promote and encourage everyone to feel welcome under one roof, even if it means approving sin, rebellion, separation, and kicking God and his word out, or at least heavily redefining God and his word to comport with man's notions. This is not what we see in the history of the Bible as the goal. Instead, both in the Old Testament and the New, we see God and his messengers calling sinful man to repentance, to change. We initially see sinners under the just punishment of death and God's wrath, finding God's redemptive grace, justification, and sanctification according to his love and mercy. We find those who were lost, separated, and cut off from God being reconciled and becoming children of the living God. But we always see the transformational change, the fruits, the newness of life, and the desire to live according to God's word. We see an ever-growing death to the old nature, the flesh, and sin. At some point, either instantly or individually, if A is identified as something which is against God's pleasure and will, then those who truly love, follow, and obey are changed by God to see victory over A. Thus, the true church will, by definition, welcome people who are sinners into their midst. If this were not the case, then none of us would be welcome and there would be no church. At the same time, the church should not be actively or passively allowing, much less encouraging, willful sin to remain. 
The purpose of the church is to be salt and light to the world and against sin by the power of Jesus Christ and his word. The church is like a hospital. It welcomes sinners like the hospital welcomes sick people. The goal is not to keep them sick, but rather to heal them. The difference is that unlike hospitals, sinners often don't want to be healed. Usually, this is because they don't believe they are sick and dying to begin with, so they don't need a hospital. This is a problem for some churches. In order to solve the problem, some churches who are bent on attendance or existence at all cost stop being places where God's word is preached or where salvation and sin are an issue. Instead of being placed where God and his word heals and breathes life into dead souls, some churches resort to being social clubs where everyone is told what they want to hear according to their feelings. In the end, in a church where God's word is unabashedly the ultimate authority, Everyone who enters is going to hear and see the truth of God's word in context. God's people will be inspired, reproved, instructed, reminded, admonished, encouraged, and warned. A true pastor will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. If A is in the Bible and A is against his will, then A will be on God's operating table for removal in any place, especially God's church, where God's word, the Bible, and where God's spirit is actively working. Now, perhaps the author and others are saying, wait a minute, you never address the specific issue of a quote-unquote gay couple being A or not. Are you saying that a gay couple, two men or two women loving each other in that way that a man and woman traditionally love each other is wrong? Are you saying that is A? How can love be wrong? Simple. When we look at the totality of God's word, what we learn is that apart from the saving, transforming power of God, Every human being is incapable of loving God. Instead, we love sin and the flesh. If we truly love God apart from Christ, we wouldn't need Christ's atoning work. Apart from Christ, our hearts, according to Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9, are, quote, desperately wicked, unquote. As a result... What we quote-unquote love, no matter how strong the emotion, is not necessarily a correct gauge which we can use to justify what we do or fail to do in life. Instead, like everything else, we have to measure what we think and do against the ultimate source of authority, God's Word. When we do this, what we learn, regardless of how we feel, is that God's word reveals that he created and ordained marriage and all of its accompanying features, 
to be an institution designed and intended for all mankind solely between one man and one woman. This is also ratified by Jesus himself in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. Consequently, if Jesus wanted to set off an empathy time bomb, there was no better opportunity than here. Instead of laying on another five yards of reinforced cement over the bigoted idea that God intended marriage to be between a man and a woman, Jesus could have set the record straight and talked about inclusiveness, tolerance, and the fact that love wins. But he did not. Why? Because Jesus was the agent of creation. According to John chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus, John says, quote, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, unquote. Ostensibly, marriage between Adam, a man, and Eve, a woman, was one of those quote-unquote things that he made. Not only did he make them, but he called them quote, very good, unquote. Further, Jesus again, speaking in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, says, quote, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder." Unquote. For more information regarding biblical marriage, I would direct those interested to the episodes entitled What God Joins Together and Questions About Biblical Marriage. Finally, in the author's opening, we have the sentence reading, quote, Jesus' time bomb explodes whenever atheists follow Jesus better than most Christians, unquote. Okay, well, first of all, we would have to define what the word, quote, Christian, unquote, means according to the ultimate authority of God's word before we proceed to compare it to what anyone else may or may not be doing. Again, I would refer the listener to the episode entitled Questions About Christianity to get a full discussion on the matter. In any case, it is worth reminder that the first century definition of a Christian was limited to meaning one who follows Christ. Thus, it may seem redundant, but only those who are truly following Christ are Christians. Said differently, if you are not following Christ, then you are not Christian, even though you may rent a freeway billboard sign to hang around your neck reading, I am a Christian. It is not the title which makes anyone a follower of Christ, i.e. a Christian. 
It is the actual act and behavior of following Christ day to day. More importantly, first and foremost, the reality of being a Christian, a child of God, is contingent exclusively on God who initiates, maintains, and completes a redemptive act in our hearts by His grace. Next, we have the term atheist. The term atheist simply means, quote, no God, unquote. That that does not mean no in the sense of knowing God. Rather, it means that you deny or highly doubt that any God exists. This is a problem for the atheist because if you are truly an atheist, if you're going to attempt to follow Jesus, then you would have to, by necessity, limit Jesus to being a mere man, a philosopher, or a really smart guy. The minute someone actually believes or has faith that Jesus is God, as he claimed, then at that moment that person can no longer honestly say that they are an atheist. One is forced to either say, I believe Jesus is God, stop being an atheist and follow Jesus as God, as Lord, as Savior, or one must deny that Jesus is God, limit him to being a mere man or an ideal, and thus be an atheist. Any middle ground is simply intellectual dishonesty because it is clear that this is what Jesus himself demands. However, apparently, the author is under the belief that it is he, atheists, or the world who are correctly defining who and what is or is not representative of being quote-unquote Christian. The author seems to believe that if atheists are able to emulate certain aspects and behaviors of what they think are quote-unquote Christian characteristics, that they are in fact following Jesus as well or better than those who have identified themselves as Christian. In this respect, the author and those who agree with him are the modern equivalent of the scribes and Pharisees in their thinking. They too had convinced themselves that being followers of God was rooted in their ability to know and follow innumerable rules and regulations. They thought that the outward demonstration of religious behavior, righteousness, and piety was pleasing to God and made them God's elect, that God was their father. But the problem for the atheist is that no true atheist loves God because no true atheists believe in God. For this reason, the atheist must limit Jesus to being a man because if Jesus is God then atheism is wrong. Jesus himself confirms this in John chapter 8, verses 42 through 47. Quote, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Unquote. This concludes this episode. Please join me again for part four. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. I will